All right, faith in action. So Luke chapter 7 is about faith. In fact, the bookends, the two stories on the bookends, highlight faith. Jesus even remarks about their faith. So just a little for example, the story we talked about the servant here uh, in verse 9, Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, he turned to the crowd that followed him and said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So the first story, Jesus says, there's a kind of faith that even in Israel I haven't seen anything like this. And all the way at the end, there's a woman, she's uh, called the sinful woman here in Luke 7, she's a prostitute, Jesus is transforming her life and working in her heart and life and The very last passage, verse 50, says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So chapter 7 is about faith. And over the next three weeks at RBC, we're going to look at, there's actually four stories. I'm going to conflate two today as we have time. We're going to look at three, let's call it vignettes of faith. We're going to talk about the centurion. Then we're going to talk about John the Baptist. If you can only come to one sermon, come to all three. If you can only come to one sermon, you make sure you want to be here next week because we're going to talk about what it means to doubt. And I think that's an important theme. If John the Baptist had seasons of doubt, I think it's reasonable to say most of us are going to doubt in our faith from time to time too. And then we're going to talk about the sinful woman and how Jesus delivers us from the opinions of other people. And that's a huge thing that faith can do in your lives. So let's talk about the story of the centurion. And maybe we can kind of just walk through the story, then we'll draw some ideas about faith. Well, the setting of the centurion story is in a town called Capernaum. In Capernaum, this is the hometown of Simon and Andrew. We know that because Jesus spoke here in Luke chapter 4. This is where Simon and Peter, brother, uh, rather Simon and Andrew are brothers. They grew up in Capernaum, so it seems. We also know that Peter's wife is from Capernaum. Jesus healed the mother-in-law there in chapter 4. So this is a common place where Jesus does a lot of ministry, and he's in this area. And then he comes across a centurion, or rather a centurion sends some people here to, uh, to, to petition Jesus for a healing. Verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal the servant. Now, a centurion is over a hundred people, over a hundred soldiers, And by the way, a tribune is over six centurions. So this centurion is kind of a high-level middle management in the Roman military. Uh, When you hear the word soldier in Scripture, that could mean a number of things. It could talk about the mercenary soldiers, probably what this man was right here, where he literally would go out and fight battles for the Roman army. It can also refer to things like just policemen. They were called soldiers. So a for example is, remember when Jesus talks to the tax collectors and the tax collectors, it says they repented and responded to the gospel? The very next group says the soldiers also responded. Those soldiers are probably not mercenary soldiers like this. They're probably just policemen that protect the tax collectors. That's why they're together. I mean, you know, collecting taxes in the ancient world is dangerous business, big time dangerous business, and they'd be surrounded by kind of these police squads you would also have a third set, which uh, would be the, the temple soldiers. They would kind of guard the temple area. But this, no doubt, is kind of that mercenary soldier. He's a regular soldier in the army. Uh, he would be level-headed but very courageous. And we know that's the job description for a centurion from the ancient writers. You had to be level-headed. There's no loose cannons at this level of management in the Roman army. 
They don't want people making decisions at that level that come back at the emperor. You have to be very level-headed. You have to be a very intelligent person. But when you're put on a mission, you have to be willing to put your life on the line. This is a pretty hard job description to find. Very level-headed, but very courageous. And no doubt this Roman soldier would fit into this category. He, I, want, I want you to notice some things. There's some very unusual things about this Roman soldier. And then we'll kind of tease out an idea in Christian theology that I just want to talk about for a minute this morning. First of all, let's notice that this soldier is unusually caring. He's unusually caring. It says that he has a slave that he highly regards. That doesn't mean just the slave is useful to him. That means he's very affectionate towards this slave. He he treats this slave almost like one of his own children or maybe a family member, a nephew. The Roman law said that a slave was a tool. And a couple of the Roman writers would say things like, at the end of the year, you should throw away all your broken tools, including your broken slaves. So not all slaves, many slaves were not treated well. We do have exceptions to this in the Roman world. But for the most part, the Roman law allowed the the owners to do what they wanted with their slaves. This slave is paralyzed. We know that from Matthew. And he's about to die. And the centurion loves this slave. He's unusually caring. He treats this servant as if he's one of the family. He's also unusually generous. It says here that he built the synagogue. Now again, it's true that a lot of Romans built synagogues for the Jewish people. And you usually found that the higher up the Roman official was. So the emperor, for example, would commission that a synagogue here, a synagogue there would be built. That's not a way to love the Jewish people. That was a way to kind of keep them in line. It was a way to give them a gift so they could allow them religious and worship in their own spaces. And the feeling was that kept them from causing trouble in the, in the Roman spheres of influence. So when you get up the Roman food chain there in the, in, the, in, the, in the political system, we do find that the emperors and some of the governors would build synagogues. This is very rare, unheard of for a centurion to do this. And so that tells us the centurion either commissioned his own men or more likely the centurion contributed to this out of his own money. He's the chief benefactor of the temple. And notice he's not doing it just to keep people in line in the area. The text says he loves our nation. Now that's interesting. The Jewish elders know that he really cares about us as people. He cares about us as neighbors. Something very unusual about this centurion. He's also unusually kind. Again, from the Roman perspective, Jewish people were considered inferior. And what I want you to notice is this centurion does not seem to be a proselyte. This is not someone that was born a Roman that became a Jewish person. If that was the case, he probably wouldn't be in the Roman army. He also wasn't a God-fearer. This wasn't one of the Roman people that wasn't a full Jew, but he still had a fear for God. Notice what the text says. It doesn't say he's one that loves our God. It's he's one that loves our nation. There's language that would be used if he was a God-fearer or a proselyte, and that's not being used here. What's being used is simply a civic kind of thing. He loves our nation. He loves our, he's a really good neighbor. And he cares for the community around him. Something very unusual about this Roman soldier. He's unusually caring. He's unusually generous. He's unusually kind. And he's unusually humble. And that's remarkable here. Look at verse 4. We're going to come back to this in a minute. 
But in verse 4, the Jewish elders, these are civic leaders, by the way, they come to Jesus and they plead earnestly with him. That means they're pulling on Jesus' robe here. Jesus, you got to help us. You gotta, and why would they do that? He is worthy to have you do this for him. He's done all these things for the nation. But then later, the centurion says in verse 6, when Jesus went to them, he was not far off. And what does the centurion say? Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. You hear what's going on? Everybody in the community says, this guy is worthy for you to bless him. But the centurion knows better. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy of this at all. I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. He's unusually humble. He does not feel entitled to what Jesus has. He doesn't feel entitled to what the Jewish people have. This is not one of those, I've done all this stuff for me, now you guys got to pay me back with a few favors. He's moved with an unusual humility. And what's happening in verse 6 is interesting. Jesus says, can you, to the, to, uh, the centurion says to the Jewish people, can you go ask Jesus if he will heal my servant? And the closer Jesus gets, the more it's clicking in the centurion's mind that Jesus, who's a Jewish rabbi, is going to have to enter my house to heal the servant. Which would be scandalous, of course, for a rabbi to enter the house of a Gentile. That's why in the book of Acts, Peter, when he goes and ministers to Cornelius, another Roman, he's kind of standing at the doorway, unsure if he should even go in. Remember when the Jewish leadership went and petitioned Pilate to take Jesus' life? It says they met Pilate on the portico. They wouldn't go in the house of Pilate. Why? They're Jewish leaders. They're not going in the house of a Gentile. This centurion knows that it is socially awkward for Jesus to enter into his house. So he says, Lord, don't come any further. You can do this with your word. What he's doing here is taking Jesus out of a socially awkward situation. And if we've been following in Luke's gospel, this is exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees, at every turn, try to trap Jesus. The centurion is saying, Jesus, I don't want to put you in an awkward spot where you're going to lose any followers from any side. He's respecting the social dynamic here. By the way, the Greek here is fascinating. You know what it literally says? Jesus, I don't want you to skin yourself. You know, that's, that's, it's like a euphemism. I don't want you to skin. In other words, don't trouble yourself. <laughs> you know, uh, you can just do it with the word. Now, here's what I want us to see. Just, just for, we could do a whole sermon on this, but I just want us to think as a congregation. What we are encountering in this passage is a Christian doctrine or teaching known as common grace. It's a really important Christian teaching because the Bible teaches that people outside of God's relationship with God are sinful, very sinful. You can use whatever language you want. They're very sinful. Uh, Romans 3 says this. Listen, Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, none that understands, none that seeks after God, all have turned aside and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Seven times, uh, Paul says, no one is good. No one does righteous. Remember when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Paul describes the lost condition is dead in trespasses and sins. People are very sinful. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the old you know, Catholic writer, said, the doctrine of original sin is the only, is the only doctrine that can be improved empirically. <laughs> you know? In other words, if, like, you can't prove the resurrection empirically, but you can prove that people are sinners pretty easily 
He said, I'm amazed that that one is so resisted by people when we can empirically prove that people are terribly sinful. Here's where I'm going with this. The Bible says that people are very sinful, but what throws us off are people like the centurion. This throws a wrench in what Christians believe, at least so it seems. Because we all know people that don't know God at all, or at least they're not in a relationship with God, but they're really good people. And sometimes what we do as Christians, we think, well, we know people are very sinful and people need to come to believe in Christ. But I know lots of people that don't believe in Jesus. And frankly, they're a lot better than the Christian people I know. See, what's happening is a lot of times what we're taught in Scripture is not squaring with what we know to be true about people in the real world. So let me just tease this out a little bit. I believe Christianity, hands down, offer, we Christians, we offer the best explanations for suffering and evil in the world. Uh, I, I've been in Christianity a long time. I've tried to wrestle through the philosophies out there the best I can. In the moments when my faith struggles the most, what keeps me in the faith, I can tell you this, what really keeps me and warms my heart is how Christianity can explain suffering in the world. I'm not going to take the time to tease this out this morning, but anybody that thinks Christianity does not offer good explanations for evil and suffering in the world, you just haven't been in the discussion. I think Christianity by far offers the best. There's a reason when a school shooting or 9-11 happens that Fox News and MSN and CNN start to interview clergy and religious people. They don't find the local secular humanist professor and ask them what they think because they don't have the resources to answer a question like that. They run to the religious world because the religious world does have answers to those kinds of questions. Are they perfect answers? No. But they're way better than you're going to get from a secular humanist at the local college. Christianity offers the best explanation. We Christians give fantastic answers. The best answers for suffering and evil in the world. Where we struggle is not explaining evil in the world. Where we struggle is explaining goodness in the world. This is where a lot of people lose their faith. Because they come to church and they're taught there is none righteous, no, not one. And then they go into the real world and they find out there's a lot of really nice, righteous people out here. It's not squaring. And that's because most of us have not thought through the teaching that's called common grace. This is a common Christian teaching. You find it in Protestant circles. You find it in Catholic circles. And I think as churches, we need to make more of this. It's a great place to do it. This centurion is not a proselyte. This centurion is not, he's not even a, really a God-fearer. But he's one of the nicest, best people in this community. And what explains that is common grace. We struggle to explain the goodness in the world. You guys know Elton John's Tiny Dancer? Remember this? She's handing tickets out on the, you know, to God. And then it says, turning back, she just laughs. The boulevard's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, there's good things on the boulevard. And that's throwing people off. What is common grace? Common grace teaches that without God renewing the heart, he still encourages and enables goodness in the world. That's what it teaches. That even people outside of Christ have a common grace. That's a good thing. That allows the world to operate. How about Romans 2.14? You know this verse? Paul says of unregenerate people, they do by nature things required by the law, for they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
Paul says the man without the Bible does some really good things because God has given a common grace into the world and into people's lives. Genesis 20, verse 6, you have passages like this, where God says to Abimelech, he's a king that's about to do something terrible. Uh, the king, he says, he says um, for, for yes, I, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and God, I have kept you from sinning against me. How's that? Elimelech, he was going to go out and wreak havoc. <laughs> and God says, you're not going to do that. That is a common grace that God keeps the kings from wreaking havoc, more havoc than they do in this world. Or Acts 17.22, Paul said in the middle of Areopagus, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Common grace is the mitigation of evil in this world. It means that we people are not as bad as we could possibly be. That God restrains the sinfulness in the world. He restrains the sinfulness in our lives. It's not that people don't need forgiveness from God. It's that God restrains that and mitigates it through his common grace. God gives common grace to all. I think you have to have a healthy view, and I'm going to get off this point. We need to have a healthy view that people are sinful, very sinful. That's why Adolf Hitler is easy for the Christian to explain. That's why Mao is rather easy for us to explain. But what's harder for us to explain is why our neighbors are so nice to us, sometimes nicer than the Christians we know. You have to have a healthy balance between believing Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and God has put common grace in the world that people that are not in Christ can do some really nice good things. If all you believe is common grace, you have no explanation for evil. If all you believe is people are very sinful, but you haven't thought through common grace, you cannot explain why there's so many nice people that don't know Jesus that, that, that kind of throw you back on your heels. There's got to be a healthy balance in understanding both of these concepts. All right, here's the intercession. The civil leaders come. They're from the Jewish community, and they really like this. I mean, they really like them. And they've met some bad ones, by the way. Remember when Jesus said, if a Roman soldier comes and says, carry that, pack an extra mile, go with them the extra mile? They've met some bad ones. By Roman law, if you were a Jewish person and the soldier said, you've got to carry my pack, you only had to carry it one mile, but Jesus says, go the extra. So it's got to be pretty common that that happened for Jesus to say that. They've met some bad ones. They know what it's like to be arrested and beaten up. They know what it's like to be mistreated by the Roman soldiers. They've met some bad ones. And this is a really good one. And so they earnestly lobby for him. On the way, the centurion starts to think about what it means. Again, he's socially sensitive to Jesus, and he sends some friends and says, Jesus, if you just say the word, we know the, 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 the spirits, the, you can physically heal even from, from miles away. And the centurion says, I have people under my control. You clearly have all things under your control. And here's what I want to highlight in verse 9 and 10. Jesus heard these things. He marveled. Lock that in. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So let me give you a couple thoughts here about faith. Here's some things to think about from this passage. Number one, there is a kind of faith that even impresses Jesus. You're just going to have to hang with me here for this point. I don't know about you, I find it very hard to impress people that have done everything. You know? You're sitting at a table, you meet some new friends, 
You're talking about how hard life can be, and you say something like, I grew up in a real rough neighborhood. You had to watch where you, you would go. So-and-so would grab you and give you a noogie and take your lunch money. And then the guy across the table goes, I hear you. I did three tours in Nam, and we had to watch where we went too. And you're like, thanks for ruining my story, you know? <laughs> like, it's hard to impress people that have done that much more than you. When I, you know what I was thinking? When I went to South Carolina, I was, I was a pastor for 17 years, and uh, we had a couple in our church that was in their 90s. Uh, he was an old New Yorker from the Bronx. And uh, I came back to, Tina and I came back to Connecticut, and we caught a Yankee game. Remember that we saw uh, Roger Clemens pitching the Yankee Stadium. He'd just become a Yankee. And this was a big deal for me. Like, you know, you have to understand the Yankee rivalry. This guy becomes a Yankee. And I saw him, and I went down, and I said, you're not going to believe this. I saw Roger Clemens pitching the Yankee Stadium. And he says, I, I grew up around the corner from Yankee Stadium. We used to play catch with Babe Ruth. <laughs> Thanks for ruining my story, old guy. <laughs> How do you top that? What am I supposed to say after that? You know, I got in a fight with Ty Cobb on the playground. You know, This is crazy. It's hard to impress people that have done everything. How do you impress Jesus? I mean, the second person of the Trinity is someone that strikes me he's not very easily impressed. You say, Jesus, I built a treehouse. He could say, I created the wood. (laughs) Where do you go with this? Notice verse 9. This is incredible. Jesus marvels. Now, that word marvel, thamazo, is a beautiful word the Greeks would use. That means to be astonished by something. Almost every time we find the word astonished, marvel, the the, the thamazo word, almost every time you find it in the Gospels, people are amazed at what Jesus is doing. Let me give you a couple examples just from Luke. you got a ton in Matthew, too. So verse chapter 4, it says, He spoke in the synagogue, and they were amazed at his gracious words. That's the word. He calms the winds and the waves in chapter 8. They are amazed. And he says, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? When Jesus cast out demons, Luke 9 and then Luke 11, this is the word that's used. He's amazed. They're amazed. When the resurrection takes place, it says the disciples, here's the, I'm going to Englishify this, they were thamazed, you know. They were amazed and marveled that he was risen from the dead. This is an incredibly powerful word. So you have to get this in context. Every time you read this word, every other time, people are amazed at what Jesus is doing. And here it says, Jesus sees the centurion's faith and he's amazed. Thamazo. He can't believe, he's impressed. Now, this is what I like about this passage. The man says to Jesus, get this. He says, I know what it's like to have authority. I tell somebody to do something and they have to listen. And Jesus doesn't say, get this, listen to this guy. Everybody listens to him when he talks. He's not impressed by the man's power. Jesus is not impressed by the man's money. and He has a lot of it. He built the synagogue. Jesus is not impressed at this man's achievement. And I can assure you, it took a lot to become a centurion and control a hundred people. When, when the man, if the man said, Jesus, look at me, look at all that I've accomplished, yawn. <laughs> but Jesus marveled at his faith. This teaches us something about our values, doesn't it, as Christians? God is not impressed by our net worth. He's not impressed by how high you climb the corporate ladder. God is not impressed that when you walk into that building just outside of Times Square, 
Did all the people stand at attention and say, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, it's great to see you today. God is not impressed by any of that. But there's a kind of faith that impresses Jesus, where we believe in him and we follow him. This faithfulness to God. And that teaches us that we as Christians should value that, both in our own lives, and this should be the number one thing that we encourage other people in. I think it's great to pray that your friend gets a promotion. I think it's great to pray that good things happen to them in this life. I think it's essential to pray that they grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It sets our values. There's a kind of faith that even impresses Jesus. Number two, loss can be an impetus for seeking God. Loss can be an impetus for seeking God. The centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death. Something is pushing this centurion to seek Jesus, and that is he's about to suffer loss. The very thought of losing someone like that that he loves causes him to go and find Jesus and ask for help. Something interrupts his life. You know, bad times don't bad times don't create our vulnerability. They do reveal it, though. The truth is, this servant has always been vulnerable. Uh, even when he feels healthy, he's vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. I mean, it, it, right now, he's kind of hanging by a thread, but we're all hanging by a thread all the time <laughs> because someday everybody dies. Everybody gets sick. We're all vulnerable, but sickness has a way of making us really feel it. And what happens in this text is the centurion really starts to feel vulnerability, and that's when he goes and seeks God. Loss is an impetus for seeking God. It has a way of activating his lazy faith. This is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, a great passage where it talks about that suffering in this life, uh, the analogy is it's like a teacher. It teaches us spiritual things. And one of the words that Paul uses, or whoever wrote Hebrews uses, is the word gymnasium. In other words, it ex- loss exercises our faith. Gymnasio is the Greek. Exercises our faith. Incredible concept. That the same way you go to a gym and you work out and you get stronger, loss has a way of pushing you into the gymnasium where you know you have to go to God and ask for help. It's commonly said that the, you know, the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. The same suffering that comes into a life can really harden us towards God or it can soften us. And in this case, it's greatly softened the heart of the centurion to go and seek Jesus. Uh, we have a little dog, and um, every once in a while, there'll be turkeys, you know, walking through our yard. And the little dog goes out, and I've seen the little dog get backed into the corner by a turkey. So he really, <laughs> but he always feels bigger than he is, you know. And he'll go screaming across the yard at those turkeys, and those turkeys just take off and fly high into the sky. Loss is a little bit like the dog in our lives, isn't it? It comes, and it freaks us out a little bit, and it causes us to lift our wings and go high into the presence of Christ. And that's what's happening here. If you are in a season of loss, if you are feeling vulnerable, now is the time to go to Christ. You've always been vulnerable. You've always been on the brink of disaster. You just didn't know it. But now that you feel it, what a great time to go to Jesus. Sometimes we doubt those deathbed conversions, don't we? Maybe we shouldn't, because that's exactly what we would expect, isn't it? Someone feels their vulnerability, and they cry out to God. makes complete sense to me. 
Here's another thought. God calls us to himself by faith. He calls us to himself by faith. Let's go back to these these two sentences. The Jewish elders say he's really worthy to have you do this for him. But then the man says, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Uh, What you have here are two competing narratives on how people come to God. The first line, verse 4, is called the moral performance narrative, right? That means we do all these good things for God, and then he probably will forgive us and save us and do a bunch of good stuff for us. The second one says, Lord, I haven't done all this good stuff for you. In fact, I don't deserve your blessing, but I'm going to ask for it anyway by grace. That's the gospel narrative. In verse 4, they're saying, this man can come to you through his own good works. In verse 6, the man says, I realize I can only come to you by grace, by faith, asking you to help me. Everybody comes to God in one of these two ways. We either come thinking he's going to bless us because we're good and worthy people, or we come to him thinking he's going to bless us because he is a good God. The elders are operating out of the moral performance narrative. The centurion is operating out of the grace of the gospel narrative. That moral performance narrative where we come to God by our own good works, you have to understand that that comes in many, many, many different packages. Lord, I'm a good, it is a conservative package, right? I'm a good family man. I do good things. I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm faithful to my kids. I'm not like the people over there that are all broken, right? That's the conservative one. Uh, You have the more progressive one. I take care of the world, I care for the poor, you know, a bunch of good things. But both of those are moral performance. It's saying, Lord, you'll bless me because I'm worthy, because I'm a good person. It's like, I've said this before, it's like pasta. You know, pasta comes in a lot of shapes, a lot of sizes. You got spaghetti, you got linguine, you got ziti, it's still pasta. This moral performance narrative comes in so many different packages, conservative, liberal. I could go on and on. You get the point. We come to God, not through that moral performance narrative, but through grace, by faith in Jesus. This is a theme that Luke is going to tease out for the rest of the gospel, so get used to it, right? In Luke 15, you have the elder brother who's coming through the moral performance narrative. And then in uh, the same chapter, of course, you have the prodigal son that comes through the grace narrative. When you get to chapter 18, there's a Pharisee. That Pharisee is coming to God through moral performance. There's a publican, a tax collector, that beats on his chest and says, I'm not worthy. That's the grace narrative. We don't come to God through moral performance. We come because of the grace of God. Number four, the object of our faith is more important than the volume of our faith. What does it mean when Jesus says, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel? He's not talking about emotion though that might have been there. And he's not talking about the size or the volume of faith. What he's talking about is this centurion is pointed out something that nobody else has really pointed out yet. That all I have to do is say a word and the servant can be healed. I don't need to touch anyone. I don't need to do anything except think about it. This centurion has identified something remarkably special in Jesus. What's important about our faith is not the volume. It's not how much we have. It's is our faith in Jesus or is our faith in something else? I mean, the stories are told a number of different ways. But, you know, you take a couple of mountain climbers. Boy, you've guys seen Free Solo? Netflix? Wow. Boy, if you haven't seen that, go watch it. 
free solo. Uh, it's got to be the scariest, um, or is it solo, scariest documentary I've ever seen. This guy climbs without ropes, and he goes way up, you know. And there's a whole culture in that. Don't do that, by the way. Um, but, you know, you think about two mountain climbers. You know, think about two mountain climbers, and maybe they're halfway up and the rope breaks. And there they are on a ledge. In order to get down, they got it, one of two choices. They can jump down to this little ledge, or they can jump down. It's like 10 feet down. And, um, you know, one of them's going to go one way, one of them's going to go the other way. And so climber A looks down at the ledge that he's going to jump to, and he says, I'm 100% confident that ledge is going to keep me. I'm fully, he's got a big smile on his face. He's glad the ledge is there, and he jumps off, and he lands on the ledge, and the ledge breaks, and, and he falls down all the way. Then you have the other one that has to jump to the other ledge. And he's not sure. He's uncertain. He's terrified. He's sweating bullets. But he jumps, and he lands on a ledge, and he lands safely. Which of those two was saved? The one that had a lot of confidence, a lot of volume of confidence, or the one that put it in the right direction? It's the one that put it in the right direction. It's not about the volume of our faith. Sometimes we say things like, I just don't have enough faith for this or that. And, and Jesus doesn't say how much faith you have. He says, where is your faith? Where are you directing it? Are you directing it towards yourself? Are you directing it towards people? Are you directing it towards me? Our faith is in Christ. It's the direction of our faith that matters. It's okay to move with trepidation and fear and doubts, but we continue to move in the direction of Jesus. Talk about that next week more. Number five, two more real quick. Faith in Christ unites all ethnicities, races, and cultures. Big theme in Luke. Wonderful theme in Luke. Precious theme in Luke. Now, the most obvious passage here is when he says, you have, I have not seen such great faith in Israel, implied that the Roman now has a greater faith than the Jewish people that Jesus has been ministering to. But we've got to get a running start to get to this one. One of the things that you may or may not have noticed is every time a big-name person comes in contact with Jesus, they end up being moved with a certain degree of humility. You don't have time to look at this. Remember Mary? Mary, when she's, it's revealed that she is going to uh, have the, the Messiah, she says, oh, you have looked upon your handmaiden. I am of low estate. She's moved with humility. How about, um, how about Simeon in the temple? Simeon comes up to Jesus, and he says, oh, I can die now. Humility. How about John the Baptist? I am not worthy to unlatch his sandal. Humility. Remember when Peter? Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. We can go on and on. Every time one of these big-name Jewish people in the Gospel of Luke comes encounter with Jesus, they're always moved with humility. And notice the centurion now is showing the same humility as all these big-name Jewish people like Peter and Mary. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. I mean, every reader in the first century of Luke would pick up on this. The centurion is not only showing a greater faith, he is showing a humility that is indicative of coming to Jesus. God is calling the church to break through the prejudices, the tribalism, the racism, calling us to push back against bigotry, where Jew and Greek are going to be one in Christ. And get this, not only... Are the Jews and the Greeks going to worship the same Jesus? They're going to do so in the same local churches. That's the kicker. I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say Jews and Greeks worship the same God. But to get them under the same roof, oh my, that's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what God does in the first century. This foreshadows the book of Acts. 
where the gospel is going to go out to the ends of the earth and all are going to be one in Christ that follow Jesus. That's the universality of the gospel. Number six, God is honored by our faith. This is a big point. But he is by no means dependent upon it. Now let's go into the next story. And we're going to do this real quick. The next story, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. There's something about this story I want us to see. He goes into a town of Nain. Uh, Nain is a few hundred people today, probably a little bit bigger back then, we think. He draws close to the city gate. And when he comes to the city gate, there's a man who had died. He's being carried along. He's not in a coffin. He's on what's called a bier, which would be a long board. They'd lay the, the body on. They'd kind of take him around. He might put some spices and things around that. And they would, they would almost bury the body immediately. They didn't have any embalming back then. And this was this is a huge funeral service, probably because it's the widow's only son. Uh, we also know that in the ancient world, they would hire professional mourners. They're called screechers. Uh, you go to a funeral in the Western world, and it's quiet. You know, you walk in, and the organ's playing, and a couple whispers and sniffles. You go to a funeral there in the East here, boy, they're screaming and yelling and hollering and that's all part of the culture. And in the ancient world, they would literally hire professional mourners at the services. The idea there is we express our grief through ripping, grief through ripping clothes and, you know, um, uh, and, 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 and being very vocal. Now, for this woman, this is an absolutely catastrophic loss. Catastrophic. She is emotionally torn up. This is her only son. I think everybody can identify with this. Psychologically, she's hurting. She feels shame. Nobody's going to carry on the family name. Big deal in the first century. Economically, she's in trouble. She has no husband. She has no more children. She's a widow. She is dependent upon that son to provide for her, and he just died. And then she's theologically also suffering because there's people all around her saying, I bet you sinned. I bet he sinned. I bet that's why he died. And if they're not saying it out loud, they're thinking something like that. So this is a really large event. And along comes the beer, verse 14. Jesus touched it. Now here's the picture. The beer is coming this way. Jesus walks right in front of it and he touches it. This is one of those things. I don't want to take it too far, but I almost get the feeling Jesus didn't think about this. It says he was moved with compassion, so he reached out and touched it. Get the same picture with the leper. Remember when Jesus touched the leper? He didn't have to touch the leper. He could have just said a word. But Jesus is so moved with compassion, he lays his hand on the leper. When Jesus touches the leper, he himself becomes unclean. When Jesus lays his hand on the dead, he himself is becoming unclean. This, oh, he could do this with a word, but he so loves and he has such compassion for the loss in this woman's life, he seems to just stop, just like that. Young man, I say to you, arise. When Jesus says that, he is either mocking the funeral or he's about to raise the dead. And he raises the dead. This, by the way, is not a resurrection. We would call this a resuscitation. A resurrection is when you rise and you never die again. A resuscitation here, kind of like with Lazarus and in this passage, of course, they're not raised eternally yet, but they are brought back to life. Fear seizes them all and they glorify God. A great prophet among you has risen. Now, here's the point that I want to make. In the story, there is something completely absent. What is it? Nobody is exercising any faith. Did you pick up on that? Jesus says in the first story, 
His faith is so great. At the end of the passage, all the way in verse 50, he's going to look at a woman and say, your faith has made you whole. But here, there's a woman that never says a word to Jesus. From what we read, she doesn't even know Jesus is there. Jesus walks up. His heart is so big. He touches that beer and says, young man, arise, just because he loves this woman. The point to appreciate is God is honored by our faith. You can't get out of the chapter without realizing God is honored by our faith. But he is by no means bound by it. He will heal who he wants to heal. He will raise who he wants to raise. And he will work his will in the world with or without our faith. It shows the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. And this is where we as Christians need to come to realize we have every reason to believe that God will honor our faith. Every reason. But we also have every reason to believe that God is sovereign and our faith does not bind God to do our will. He does his own will, whatever he wishes. So God is, not honor- God is honored by our faith, but he is not dependent on it. When you see those little videos fly by you of some pastor here or pastor there talking about God can't work without your faith, you go back and think about this chapter <laughs> where God does a lot of things, does it in John 4, by the way, also. He is not dependent on anybody's faith. He's the Lord of all. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. We ask your blessing on your people. Help us to be a people of faith. We don't control you with our faith. We don't bind you by our faith, but you are glorified to use our faith. So help us to diligently seek you and be the faithful people you call us to be. Lord, I pray that we would cultivate faith even more than net worth and cultivate faith more than authority in this world. For that is what made you marvel in this passage. Jesus, we come to you in faith today. Thank you for being our Savior and our God. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.